Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Desi, let's start out the show by thanking our Patreon contributors. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we have Elizabeth, Amanda, Jeanette, Tracy, Teresa, Erica, Rosie, Shay, Jamila, Candice, Troy, Stephanie, Julie, Eric, Adrian, Charles, Leslie, Toff, Emily, Tracy, Raven, Marie, Mary, and Patricia. Thanks, guys. Thank you all so much. All right, Desi. I don't know how many parters parts. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I I don't know how many parts this is going to be. Okay, but this is part one, so it's definitely going to be two parts. Well, it, well, it's, yeah, it's not. <laughs> we got that many parts. I'm not going to come to the end of this episode and say that's enough. Actually, this worked out <laughs> in one episode. <laughs> no, this story has a lot of moving parts. Okay. And a lot of characters in it. Mm-hmm. So this is part one of the Cotton Club movie murders. Yeah. Now the book I read for this episode is called Bad Company, Drugs, Hollywood, and the Cotton Club Murder by Steve Wick. I also read a lot of newspaper articles and an old New York Magazine article from 19. 19- 80, which I will talk about in this episode. So there is a lot of great information out there. Let's get started. Okay. Roy Radin was born November 13th, 1949 to Renee and Al Radin. His mother was a former showgirl and his father, Al, was known as Broadway Al. Al was a successful Manhattan nightclub owner and Broadway promoter spanning from the 1920s through the 1950s. Inspired by the career of his father, Roy dropped out of high school to forge his own career in show business. In the late 60s, Roy left Long Island, New York to live with his father in Florida, where he did promotional work for the Clyde Beatty Circus. Roy himself was a performer and sang in coffee shops, though... He wasn't that good of a performer. Yeah. He was much better... Behind the scenes. Behind the scenes producing shit. Roy was still a teenager when he began putting together his own variety shows featuring fading comics, singers, and circus performers, and even chimpanzees. Ooh. This is where I got sidetracked last week. Where I told you I was looking up this famous... Famous actor who was also a chimpanzee. (laughs) That's what I told Desi. I said, Desi, have you heard of this actor? He's also a chimpanzee. His name is J. Fred Muggs. And he's still alive today. Oh, that's right. That's why you brought it up. Because chimpanzees live a really long time. Yeah. He's like, he's literally 70 years old. Wow. So this guy's working in what, when he's putting these acts together, what era is this? This is like the late 60s. Okay. 
Okay. Early seventies. Um, he obviously used his father's connections. Right. To wrangle these performers. Roy signed George Jessel to headline his first show. George Jessel first found success as a vaudeville performer and would go on to have a lengthy stage and film career. By the time he was performing for Roy, he was in his 70s. So everyone he's hiring is like old. They're at the end of their careers. (laughs) That's the nice way to say it. Yes. And they're willing to do the son of Broadway Al's little road show that he's putting together. Uh, like I said before, also included in Roy's show was J. Fred Muggs, the famous chimpanzee performer. This chimp became famous when he became the co-host of the Today Show <laughs> <laughs> in 1953, and that boosted their ratings. They were in the toilet. Oh, wow. And they're like, well, uh, chimpanzee is So that the was when he was just starting yeah. <laughs> his career. Yeah, they like put him in diapers. Aw. He was one of those. I mean, that is cute. Yeah, it's always cute when a little chimpanzee's wearing diapers. With a big pacifier. Yeah. It's just kind of for show. Yeah. (laughs) And he would like get dressed up in like business suits. Oh, you gotta. Yeah. Roy's traveling vaudeville shows were wildly popular. And by the age of 20, he was a millionaire. Whoa. I was actually thinking, who's seeing these shows? (laughs) Like, who the. I was blown away at how popular these shows allegedly were, were or just how much money that they were pulling in for him. I mean, maybe they were kind of like throwback kind of things. Like, let's go see a vaudeville show. Because like, it seems like in the late 60s, early 70s, that would not be as popular. Yeah, it's just weird. But like Roy like had this obsession with vaudeville. He really wanted this whole vaudeville revival, it seemed like. Right. Um, and whether or not that was because he really liked vaudeville or because he had all these phone numbers in his pocket. I mean, maybe it's good, clean family fun. Like anyone can go see the show, right? Like, yeah, that's probably a part of it too. But he also just had all these performers at his disposal because of his Who dad. had kind of names that people recognized. Yes. Yeah. Roy bought a 72-room Southampton mansion. He called it Ocean Castle. The Long Island Tudor-style home was originally built in 1929 and sits right on the beach. Roy moved into the home with his wife, Loretta, and their two adopted children, Julius Caesar and Retta. (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay. I mean, that's interesting if your child's name is Julius Caesar. It's certainly interesting. <laughs> I would be annoyed if I was the daughter because the daughter's name is literally just the last half of the mom's name. Oh, wait. what? It's Redden? The mom's name is Loretta. and the, Oh, Retta was her name. And the daughter's name is Retta. Okay. Be like, yeah. hey. The, yeah. I mean, Retta's kind of a cute name, but yeah, yeah it's sort but, of like, eh, let's just do that. Or maybe I, her name was Loretta, too. I feel like they didn't try hard enough with my name. With Julius Caesar. I mean, this is like, my son's a king. My daughter, she's just a facsimile of my wife. (laughs) Yeah, like that's a tough act to follow. Yeah, absolutely. Around this time, Roy was putting on benefits for the police department in Long Island as a means to ingratiate himself with them. In 1975, New York State Attorney Louis Lefkowitz investigated Roy Radin Enterprises and determined that only 27% of his show's proceeds were actually going to the police charities. Oh. So Roy was like basically just being like, oh, overhead costs and like, 
he was pocketing like all the proceeds. Yeah, that's basically. a very common charity scam. He was pulling charity scams. Modern Luxury Magazine said, quote, tough talking callers would offer protection to shopkeepers to persuade local organizations to buy tickets with the proceeds supposedly going to help local police benevolent associations. But none of this seemed to sully his relationship with the cops. A quote from one of Roy's housekeepers was, quote, he was just, he just about owns the Southampton police. He uses them as his private security force. Wow. And this definitely allowed Roy to feel like he was sort of untouchable. And the Hamptons is like, if you haven't been there to the listeners, it's a very small town vibe. Like, you know what I mean? It's like a summer industry there, but there are people who live year round. So you can see this happening. Like, it's completely believable to me that someone who's there kind of all the time could pull that. Yeah, A few years later, Roy's marriage to Loretta ended and she left with the kids. Roy Radin's persona was over the top, to say the least. He wasn't some shy, working-behind-the-scenes producer. He fancied himself as a star as well, donning a fedora, just like his father did, and he also wore capes. Look, this guy... (laughs) He's like an impresario, like... You just know he's the kind of guy who would call himself that. Yeah. I he, mean, he's sad he didn't, the swing scene didn't happen back then. <laughs> he would have right. been all over that shit. There wasn't a swing revival happening in 1980. Yeah. Yeah. He would have been all over it. For sure. He also thought of himself as like a real big shot. Love it. His press agent, Richard Gersh, told the New York Times in 1983, quote, what he really wanted was acceptance on Broadway and in Hollywood. He began to tell everyone that he was going to bring his troop into New York, to the palace. These shows may have been great in western Pennsylvania, but basically they were schlock. In fact, some of the stuff was embarrassing. It was so bad, but you couldn't tell that to Roy. He had no idea of good or bad, no taste at all. So we told him it was impossible to crack the Broadway establishment. He bought that for a time. <laughs> Roy Radin was a locally known minor celebrity, sometimes appearing in the tabloids when he would go out on the town. In the book Bad Company, Steve Wick says, quote, sometimes the paper would print a picture too, a smiling fat man in an expensive suit ducking into Studio 54. He was practically a fixture at the club, where he would spend the night snorting cocaine in a private room and talking about deals. But in April of 1980, Roy Radin made headlines for some pretty bad shit. Ooh. Roy was hosting a weekend get-together at Ocean Castle. He had invited 23-year-old actress Melanie Haller. Melanie was most known for being on Welcome Back, Cotter. Oh. Did you watch that show? Uh, no, but I have seen it, like when it was on TV later. Nick at Night? Yeah, like yeah. Nick at Night. Yeah, I watched like an episode. I've of, seen a few episodes, yeah. I'm sure, but for I don't sure. know who she is. She was also a model and had appeared in Playboy. A photographer friend of hers, a man named Ronald Seisman, suggested that she meet Roy Radin, who might be able to help with her career. So he connected the two of them. Melanie brought along her portfolio. Accompanying Melanie to Roy's house was a man that she was dating named Robert McKeege. Now, Robert also knew Roy Radin. Robert was a 42-year-old wealthy businessman originally from Canada. 
Melanie and Robert met two weeks prior at a disco in Manhattan called Xenon. Ooh. On the way to Southampton, Melanie and Robert stopped at a drugstore and purchased three dog chains. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) We're going to get into it. (laughs) The first night at Ocean Castle began with dinner. Joining them were two cops from Rhode Island who were there to discuss a show that Roy was putting on for the Rhode Island Police Union. Also in attendance was Roy's fiance, Tony Filet. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you were just going to pass that name by without a word? Tony Filet? <laughs> It's a good name. It's so good. Is that Tony like T O N I? Yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) According to journalist Anthony Hayden Guest in his 1980 piece for New York Magazine, BDSM had become very fashionable in the Hamptons at this time. Oh, Ina Garten. Yeah, that's another thing. How long have Ina and Jeffrey lived in the Hamptons for? I think a pretty long time. Like, right, I'm sure she was there in the 80s at some point. Well, she had to have been because I think that's when her, her shop, her was shop open, yeah. opened. Yeah. I mean, maybe it was more mid-80s, but I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I always imagine Barefoot Contessa opening up in the mid-80s and her selling homemade sun-dried tomatoes. And like chicken salad on croissants. Oh, yeah. Well, no, she literally did sell that. She, I think she's done a recipe on her show for that before. I love when Ina does... I mean, I want it. Yeah. But I love when Ina will be pulling out a recipe, like, and she's like, we used to make this at Barefoot Contessa yeah. all the time. So I feel like chicken salad is something that was always on the menu. Oh, God, yeah. This is a quote from that New York Magazine article. Quote, a handful of Southampton houses became famous last year. Guests would leave formal dinners early, pleading the need for an an early night. It seemed there was no shortage of lovelies looking to slip out of their Halstons and into something more uncomfortable. Ooh, nice twist. (laughs) (laughs) In the article, Anthony Hayden Guest talked to a Southampton resident and BDSM enthusiast who at the time he only referred to as the Roman senator. Now, I was racking my brain. Is he talking about some Italian senator? <laughs> no, he, he called in the Roman senator because of, he said he looked like a Roman senator. Okay. But he called in that just for this article to keep this man anonymous. It was his anonymous name or But whatever. this is a guy who is like a Hamptons resident. He's super into the BDSM scene, but he's like a BDSM OG. Uh-huh. He's not like doing it for the trend. No, he's been there a long time. He's been there long before these yeah. posers. His dungeon has a patina. <laughs> Absolutely. The Roman senator balked at many of the wealthy residents' new hobby, claiming that they weren't practicing it right. And he never accepted an invitation to Roy Radin's house. This is funny because I feel like this beef in the BDSM community is as old as time. <laughs> like it's still happening today, right? Yeah. Like the posers come in and it pisses off all the real like sort of proponents of that kink. Well, and I think there's also obviously very legitimate arguments against people who maybe are new to BDSM and don't 
actually know what BDSM is about and therefore are being dangerous with exactly. their, with their no, practices. No, there's legitimate irritations there for oh. sure. They don't follow the rules and like there are very strict rules in place with this kind of stuff. Right. Uh in the community. Safety precautions. Yeah, safety precautions. Yeah. And, Where and, everyone should feel safe and like, right. uh, that's a key aspect to it. And there's people who don't care to learn that or don't care to respect the process. Right. There's some element that they like and they feel like they can get away with their own sadistic needs. Yeah. And they abuse what the community is. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's just funny that this just always happens. Like these trends pop up and all the noobs come in. <laughs> Right, and they they don't take it seriously. Yeah. So that was this guy's beef about uh, these rich Hamptons posers. He said, "quote It's like these guys just joined a trip. It's like these guys just enjoyed a trip on a private jet, so they try to buy one." Yeah. Another great quote from the article was when Anthony Hayden Guest was talking to this guy's girlfriend. The girlfriend said, "quote Other girls' boyfriends get them jewelry from Van Cleef's." My boyfriend gets me stuff from Herod's pet shop. <laughs> in a follow-up article with the Daily Beast in 2015, Anthony Hayden Guest revealed that the man he called the Roman senator was really international man of mystery and private investigator Tom Corbelly. Is that person someone I should know? Well, I feel like we both should know this person and do an episode on him because this guy had connections to British royalty, to American politicians, and even Heidi Fleiss. Ooh. And he was up to some weird shit. Okay, we should put him down. I've never heard his name. I hadn't either, but... There's a lot of, I mean, he was definitely, I don't even know how to describe him. He was I like, like those figures, those shadowy Hollywood, like that are kind of in that rich and famous Hollywood world. He was kind of a fixer, but he yeah. was also a private investigator. It's like that Anthony Pelicano guy. Yeah. He's always kind of around. I always see his name popping up. Right. Like this guy was also involved in like, I don't know his connect, what the exact connection was, but he was around certain scandals involving British royals. Ooh. I don't yeah. know. It just seemed like there's a lot of juice on him. Yeah, let's do so, it. So for another time. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. 
With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. As for what happened at Roy Radin's mansion the weekend of April 11, 1980, reports vary. This was a drunken, drug-fueled weekend. But one thing is for sure, Melanie Haller was attacked. (gasps) What may have started as consensual bondage play between Melanie and the other house guests clearly ended non-consensually. Melanie and Robert apparently did a little bondage in Roy Radin's bedroom on Friday night, both of them wearing dog chains and collars, the same ones they had purchased before coming over. Then, sometime early Saturday morning, Melanie tried to show her portfolio to Roy, but Roy wasn't interested. Melanie returned to her bedroom. At some point on Saturday night, Mickey DeVinco, a.k.a. Mickey Deans, one of Judy Garland's ex-husbands. Oh, that's right. He was there. Oh, shit. He took a bunch of pills and had to be rushed to the hospital. (gasps) Damn. That's right, because he was really young when they were married. Yeah. So he he would have still been pretty young. He was 39 when this happened. By Sunday morning, Melanie Howler was found aboard the Long Island Railroad train, bloody, bruised, and in a complete daze. Jesus. She was practically catatonic. The train conductor called the cops. Melanie was rushed to the hospital and questioned by police. She said that she was beaten and raped at Roy Radin's house and then dumped on the train. A doctor wouldn't end up performing a rape kit until two days after she was admitted. Oh, my God. Which is like, that evidence is... Yeah, it's gone. It's gone by then. For reasons I'm not clear of why they waited two days. Right. Furthermore, Melanie's mother unknowingly destroyed potential evidence by taking the clothes she was wearing... And she'd wash them. Oh. So nobody yeah. told her, like, don't take those clothes. Right. This just seems like a very incompetent situation. And a lot of people do things like that in these situations, trying to kind of, like... Help. Help, yeah. Like, cleanse things and, like... You know what I mean? Like, women used to take showers or... Yeah. Right. You and, really need guidance. Right. So it doesn't seem like anyone really took the rape aspect of this attack or even just oh she could have been raped let's I do mean, a rape kit it's weird how much more we know nowadays like even we just know individually hey we can't do that <laughs> or like we need to save that evidence like do you know what i mean like right, right. they really had no- nothing then absolutely melanie said that she was raped and beaten by two men and two women while roy <gasps> raiden filmed <sighs> sometime during the assault she smashed the video camera One of the men was her date, Robert McKeege, who was attacking her. One of the women being charged with beating her was Tony Filet, Raiden's girlfriend. She told the cops that there were a lot of drugs at this party. 
Melanie's mother, Myra, said that she got a phone call on Sunday morning from someone at the Raiden house and said that her daughter was, quote, incoherent. Myra asked that her daughter be put into a limo and taken back to Manhattan, but Raiden objected to the $60 cost, (gasps) so they just dropped her off at the train station. Oh, my God. And Raiden would later be like, well, what, we told you what train she was taking. Like, I, I can't understand how $60 it seems like a drop in the bucket to him also like you'd think that someone who just did something awful would be like sure (laughs) like trying to at least look good then like do you know what I mean like right that just shows like what an absolute piece of shit he is totally Myra Haller spoke to the New York Daily News about her daughter's assault according to her Melanie was raped by one of the men but fought off the second guy both (laughs) men beat her she said that two women joined in beating her. Oh. She also said that her daughter was at one point held in a locked room at gunpoint. Oh, my God. Was she um, also intoxicated or like did she? Well, that's the interesting thing is that Melanie's mother swears. She's like, my daughter doesn't drink. I mean, I'm not saying it matters. I was just curious because that would affect what she remembered uh, maybe. Yeah, no, she she definitely made a statement at least once that I read where she said, my daughter doesn't drink or okay. she doesn't take drugs. Right. Police raided Ocean Castle on Monday. Roy Raiden allegedly received a tip from one of his cop friends that his home was about to be raided. Ugh. So he tried to destroy some evidence before they raided. When they did get there, Roy Raiden, of course, shouted, do you know who I am? Oh, my God, this and guy. he reminded the cops that he had friends all throughout the police department and of all the work he had I done. I robbed your charity. Yeah. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> um, police found and seized that broken video camera that, oh. Mel- that Melanie said was used to film her without her consent. The videotape that was on it had been partially erased. Among the other items seized in the raid were bedsheets, towels, clothing, and videotapes, and they also found cocaine and LSD. The police asked Roy Raiden if the loaded thirty-eight caliber pistol they found in his bedroom was his. Roy said no, it belonged to a cop friend of his who had left it <sighs> there. So he was arrested for unlawful, unlawful possession of a firearm. Okay. They're like, oh, it's not your gun? Okay, well, <laughs> why is it here? We're yeah. taking it. Meanwhile, investigators were looking for Robert McKeege, who, according to his lawyer, had gone to Canada on a business trip. Oh, how convenient. It was learned that Robert had been arrested several years prior for sexual sexual assault. (gasps) Oh, my God. According to police records, then 27-year-old Robert raped and beat a 19-year-old woman and held her captive at gunpoint in his Manhattan apartment. Oh, my God. The case was dismissed due to lack of cooperating evidence. When Robert returned from his business trip, he agreed to an interview with a reporter. He denied that there were ever any drugs at this party. He said this was not a drug sex-fueled party, though I wish it was. Ew. He, he did say that in, in his quote. Uh, he said that Melanie had gotten drunk and fallen down the stairs. Ugh, and then you put her on the train. Like, none of this makes sense, Like even if that was true. By Monday, April 21st, police had interviewed everyone who was at the Raiden mansion except for Robert McKeege, though he was expected to appear at the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office soon. 
The other house guests at Roy's had been largely uncooperative. No one wanted to talk. Defending Roy was Hampton's lawyer, Stephen Siegfried. Siegfried later told the New York Times... Siegfried and Roy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's true. (laughs) How long have Siegfried and Roy been in an act? Well, they're both dead now. Wait, they are? Both yeah. Of them? Yeah. I thought the other just one, one just, of them. The other one died of COVID this oh, year. Oh, yeah. It probably was like lost in all the other news. Oh, that's yeah. really sad. It's really sad. Um, yeah. They love those tigers. It was a huge act. I never saw them. I never saw them either. Would have loved to, though. Yeah, me too. So... Siegfried later told the New York Times about visiting Roy at Ocean Castle during this time. Quote, he had a whole harem there. He had one girl on each knee and another standing behind him with her arms around his neck. He was eating sandwiches and drinking vodka stingers and kissing the girls and trying to tell me what happened. He was big, all fat. It was wild. (laughs) I like the sandwich. He was eating sandwiches. I like that he has a harem of women. He's eating sandwiches. He's drinking vodka stingers while he's talking to his defense attorney. Yeah. Incredible. About this rape assault charge. Robert McKeege was interviewed by Suffolk County detectives for three and a half hours. He repeated his claim that there were no drugs at this party and that Melanie had fallen down a flight of stairs. Melanie's lawyer would later counter at the grand jury hearing that Melanie did not get bite marks from falling downstairs. Also, who in their right mind believes there's no drugs at this party? There's just no way. (laughs) Like, look, you take one look at Roy Radin and you know there's cocaine there. It's the 80s. (laughs) Everyone's doing cocaine. (laughs) It's honestly absurd that... But they tried to go with that line. It's like, we're perfect angels. <laughs> right. We're the one, we're the only rich people in the Hamptons in 1980 who aren't doing cocaine. Yeah, it's just absurd. Meanwhile, Melanie was extremely afraid that her speaking against these powerful men would have serious consequences. She feared for her life. Roy Radin issued a statement claiming that Melanie had previously accused another man of assault. I didn't find anything about that, but authorities began looking into that after he made that claim. Roy also accused her of trying to get money from him. On May 5th, the New York Daily News reported that Roy Radin was involved in a brawl at a disco. According to Steve Rogers, who owned the club, which was Magic, (laughs) Roy got into a fight with another club goer after he accused him of sitting at his table. The club goer said, Steve told me I could sit here. Oh. Steve intervened, was like, I don't know you. And then a fight broke out. <gasps> and Steve wound up getting a cut on his face and needing three stitches. Wow. So Roy's made the paper for that. I saw this picture. He was like, you know, fight at the discotheque. It, <laughs> it was. They were like, he had gotten to a brawl at the discotheque. In the middle of the grand jury hearings, Melanie suffered what her mother described as a nervous breakdown and was admitted to a psychiatric hospital for evaluation. The rest of the hearings were postponed. By the end of June, Roy was gearing up for his next big vaudeville show on Long Island. The show was set to feature acts like Tiny Tim, George Savalas from the show Kojak, oh. Desmond Wilson from Sanford and Son, Ooh. Loretta Young from Sesame Street, and musical acts The Drifters and The Marvelettes. 
I'm excited for Tiny Tim. He's the headliner. (laughs) (laughs) Look, when I first found out about Tiny Tim when I was a kid, I was so confused. It's a bizarre thing. Just when you see him for the first time, you're like, as a kid, you're like, is this real? Is this funny or real? Like, you can't quite grasp what that character is. Like, I mean, my mom definitely told me about him when I was little. And then she, I remember she showed me a picture of him and I was like, who, what is this? I think I saw him like on the tonight show maybe or something like that. I think he was like a guest on that show every once in a while. I I don't know where else I would have seen him. Like I think he was like a talk show person. Well, he was like real hot in the late sixties. He was on all those late night shows. Yeah. By the time I saw him, he was way past his prime of his career. He was like older. Um, but yeah, I have no idea. So even by the time Roy scooped him up, because they met in 1971, I believe. Right. Tiny Tim was on the decline career wise. Yeah. This is like, the early 80s or in 1980. Well, now this is 1980, but Roy had been working with him for several okay, years yeah. at this point. I mean, he had like a flash of fame and I think it was all de- mostly downhill. <laughs> like yeah. he had like, you know, one burst and that was it. Yes. But now I guess he's like a cult Absolutely. icon. Yeah. The following year in 1981, Robert McKeege pled guilty to second degree assault and was sentenced to 30 days in jail. Roy Radin was fined $1,000 and sentenced to three years probation. At this time, Roy Radin was just itching to get into the movie business. Well, now he has a pedigree. In June of 1981, he told the New York Daily News that he was working on a film called Slick with Red Fox and Desmond Wilson. Ooh. I don't think this movie ever came out, Desi. Uh, It did not, because I would have probably seen it. (laughs) I love Red Fox. (laughs) One of Roy's former business partners told the New York Times of his Hollywood aspirations, quote, it was pathetic. (laughs) He paid $2,500 for a table at the Friars dinner for Elizabeth Taylor, and he'd never even met her. So, like I said before, as if it wasn't clear, Roy was definitely that guy. He's like buying like connection do you know what i mean like he doesn't belong there but he was able to afford a seat at the table kind of yes and everyone's like who's this guy yeah roy was definitely doing that thing where a lot of wannabes sort of pump up and embellish all the big moves that they're allegedly making yes and they have money so they're somewhat believable i think right you know what i mean like and he has some stuff going on, even even if it's just this vaudeville show. But he's definitely telling people about deals that are not really based in reality. Right. right. Or they're half- I have something in development with Desmond Wilson. I mean, anyone could say they have something in development. They could oh, be right. developing dinner in a half hour. <laughs> it's cooking in the it's oven. All, yeah, it's all propping things up. Yeah. And, and he was he was playing that. You game. have to just be shameless. Most people feel bad. <laughs> Lying like that or even fudging things. Yeah. His press agent, Gersh, admitted as such. He said that none of the deals he ever talked about had any substance. Yeah. In September of 1981, Roy Radin married Tony Filet. Yes. The reception was a lavish, roaring 20s theme party at their mansion. What is it with rich people wanting to do roaring 20s theme parties? <laughs> The Great Gatsby. It's like we used to kill poor people. <laughs> <laughs> we. We. 
Yeah, it's like I just feel like it is. I mean, it is such a cliche. Like, look, there are obviously some aesthetic aspects of the 1920s that are cool. Yes, but, but it's I, like it definitely got overdone, especially when that Leo movie came out, the Great Gatsby movie, like recently. Like that Roaring Twenties theme was just the it was like the theme of every party. It's for for like years. I feel like yeah. I just I do think it's funny that they did this. I mean, he rented like vintage cars to escort people. Right. He everyone obviously wore costumes. He wore his white fedora, which I don't think was very period correct. No. That but seems like a period movie where they didn't do a good job. Yeah, right, where it's like fifties kind of or something. Right, it's like your fedora seems a little more like nineteen forties detective. Yeah, uh, it was a Labor Day weekend event. This was one of those weddings that spanned the whole weekend. Oh God, you know the type. Too exhausting. After the weekend-long celebration, 25-year-old model J.C. Layton filed a report with the Southampton police alleging that Roy sexually assaulted (gasps) her in his sauna on his wedding night. Jesus. Many of the guests were allowed to stay at Ocean Castle for the weekend festivities. Layton said that at 2 a.m. on Sunday, she went to the sauna. While she was there, naked and alone, Roy entered and demanded that she give him oral sex. Jesus. She fought him off, and then she ran and told Tony about it, but Tony didn't believe her. Tony was a real stand-by-your-man bitch at this time. Yeah. By the time police raided the mansion, Roy and Tony Raiden were already on their honeymoon. Roy claimed that J.C. was out of control at his house and that he had already asked her to leave and that she was setting him up and probably wanted money. He also claimed that she tried to steal a pillowcase full of jewelry. <gasps> I don't know if that's true. Right. I don't believe anything he says. Yeah. At this They're point, always out of his, after his money or they've made other claims before. Yeah. I mean, classic. On Halloween night of 1981, 39-year-old photographer Ronald Seisman and his 20-year-old girlfriend, Elizabeth Platzman, were found murdered in Ronald's Manhattan apartment. The couple was severely beaten, and then both of them were shot in the back of the head. The apartment appeared to have been turned upside down, as if someone was looking for something. There was no sign of forcible entry, suggesting that Ronald may have known the killer. Now, Ronald, if you didn't remember, was the photographer who was a mutual friend of Melanie Haller and Roy Radin. Okay. Police speculated that the crime may have been drug-related, as Ronald was known to have sold drugs, but this murder remains unsolved to this day. I, of course, immediately Googled this and tried to figure out, did people speculate if he was murdered by Roy Radin or his associates for whatever reason? I think some of his friends uh, asked Roy about that, like, oh, did you do this? But there was a lot of people who seemed to think this was a son of Sam killing. Oh. At least like from um, like medium articles, not like any like official news no, sources. No, but wouldn't he have already been in jail, Berkowitz? Oh, yeah. Because it was like 81, Well, right? whenever I Googled this guy's name, son of Sam's, uh, David Berkowitz's face popped up. Oh, that's really weird. And people, I'm pretty sure he was in jail by then, but I'm not sure 100%. There was some Son of Sam connection that people were trying to make with this. 
it's possible that people thought there were multiple Son of Sam's too. Uh, like maybe Berkowitz didn't act alone. I feel like yeah. that's sort of a theory. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's interesting. But no one f- solved this case. Right. By 1982, Roy Radin was feeling the fallout from the Melanie Haller incident. The police departments had shied away from working with him, not only because of his legal troubles, but also because they caught on about him taking most of the profits from his charity events. Now, I did look at several newspaper articles from this time and saw that he was still doing police events in 1982. Uh, Maybe he just wasn't doing the Southampton police events. Right. He might have just moved on to other departments, but he was still very much like tight with cops. Uh Not only were these his like police friends from Southampton backing away, but so were a lot of his friends. He was officially on the decline career wise. His marriage was also deteriorating as well. Roy and Tony fought constantly. Tony said he had a violent temper, and Roy said she spent too much money shopping. In February of that year, Roy was preparing for his next big tour starring Joey Bishop as the MC. Roy hired theater producer Jonathan Lawson to produce. Joey got pissed off on the night of the second show over a payment dispute. He was promised... He said he was promised his money up front and he wanted it and Roy wasn't giving it to him. So Joey was like stewing in his dressing room, threatening not to go on. And Roy was like, you're going to go on. And Joey's like, I'm a fucking legend. Yeah. He's like, I'm I'm a... a (laughs) And Roy was like, I'm a legend. I'm the star of this show. So... Joe, Roy knew he couldn't, like, he, he was like, well, we can't beat, beat up Joey because we wanted to perform. Right. So we got to send him some kind of message. So Raiden had two guys beat up Joey Bishop's manager while the audience waited for the show to begin. Oh, my God. Yeah, they, like, beat this dude up backstage. The poor manager. He got sent to the hospital. Holy shit. And then Roy was like, oh, shit, I don't want the cops to come here. So he, he bailed and he got on a plane and left. Oh my right god. Right before the show started. Or you could just pay the guy what you promised. <laughs> Seriously. Joey warned Roy that he had guys in Philadelphia who could fuck him up. <laughs> that sounds very threatening. Yes. <laughs> no one and, wants to hear those words. And and Roy laughed at this. He was like, Oh, you got muscle in Philadelphia. Oh ha ha ha, you know. And just the audacity of Roy Raiden. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this guy's ego is like, it's unbelievable. It's stunning, really. Now, I watched a the one video I could find on YouTube of Roy Raiden. I want to play it for you. And it's it's a promo for his show that he was doing with Joey Bishop. And it's funny knowing this backstory because... They're all in the commercial together, just knowing that they fucking hated each other at this point. Right. This is the most early 80s commercial I have ever seen in my life. I'm going to play it right now. I'm Joey Bishop, and I'm Roy Raiden, the producer. Well, you heard the applause. Joey, don't forget to tell him who's on the show. I'm just about to. Remember, there's Alan Jones, Tessie O'Shea, Esther Marrow, Jackie Vernon, Harmonica Rascal, The Agostino, Pierre Dupont and Sparky, Harry Maurer, The Bourbalettes. Joey, don't forget to tell him who's on the show. You already did. 
Earl Wilson says Joey Bishop gets standing ovations in Roy Radin's tribute to Vaughn. Reservations and special group rates call 609-340-2861. Awful. So Joey reluctantly continued with the tour, which included shows all throughout the summer at Bally's, as you just heard, in Atlantic City. That's a big that's a big get. Yeah. He's he's got (laughs) he's gotta stick to the Bally's commitment. But eventually, Joey dropped out, and he was replaced by Jackie Vernon. Joey Bishop and Roy Radin would meet one morning at a restaurant in Manhattan to settle their financial dispute. Both Roy and Joey brought along their gangster friends to moderate this meeting. (laughs) After that, their relationship was officially over. And then, Roy Radin and Tony Filet filed for divorce. No. Why? Just Who cares? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no. You just like Tony Filet. Yeah. At least she gets her maiden name back. She gets, <laughs> she, she can still be Tony Filet. She doesn't have to be Tony Raiden. Yeah. That's good. Uh, they filed for divorce and she cited like, oh, he spent too much time with his stupid fucking vaudeville show. Oh, I'm sure he had many other issues. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the show's, he had planned for Las Vegas, fell through, but now Roy had his sights set on something bigger. He wanted to go to Los Angeles. Ooh. And that's where we will end part one. Great. We're going to talk Hollywood next week. I like that he can only get Atlantic City. Yeah. Like, <laughs> look, no offense to Atlantic City, but I remember the first time I went to Atlantic City, I was so excited and I was like, oh. <laughs> It's really depressing. It was very depressing when I went, which was back not that early, but maybe late 80s or early 90s. So you went before the storm wiped out a lot of it, though. Oh, yeah. So even then? It was just uh, not a thriving hotspot. It was sort of, I don't know that it ever was. What like about maybe the, back in the day, like in the Boardwalk 20s. Empire days? Yeah. yeah. No, I just remember being like, oh, this is depressing. Like, it just, I mean, maybe I didn't go the right time of year or something. Uh, I went with a family. Um, so, like a, you know, as like right. a nanny or something, or like a little babysitter, like helping them. I went a few years ago with Brendan because my grandma, uh, her condo, is like 20 minutes away from Atlantic City at the shore. Okay. So she lives fairly close. So we drove out there one night and I thought it would be like a strip or something. I don't know. We just went to like Harris. Yeah. And it was fucking dead. It's yeah. I don't know. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed Jersey shore trips. Like I like the place that's sort of South with the big elephant. What's that place called? Do you know that place? I don't know. It's like Mar something. Margate. Margate. That's yeah. where my grandma lives. They have the big elephant. What's the big elephant? It's right by the shore. There's like this huge old vintage elephant. Well, I've only been to Margate because she used to live uh, in Love Ladies. Okay. Which is yeah. uh, north. I've more been north. to Margate several yeah. times. So and I, I got custard there. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I've, only, I've only been to her Margate place like once. Okay. So I don't really know the area as well as I did okay. uh, like the Barnegat Light area. Yeah. I, so I think there is a famous ele- elephant there. What is it? A statue? It's like a, um, 
Yeah, it's like a statue, but it might not. It might be made of wood. I'll, I'll look it up later. But I think it's pretty famous. Yeah, like when you go there, you go see this fucking elephant. Maybe I did see. I don't remember. But yeah. I mean, look, like I said, that is like my dream. This summer, like at some point late in the summer, maybe I'm gonna have to wait for next year. I just I want to take my I want to go to the shore with my grandma. Yeah, yeah. I love the Jersey Shore. Me too. I love it so much. And there are elements I liked about the boardwalk. Yeah. Like in Atlantic City. Yeah. Uh, it just was sort of not as thriving as I thought it would be. And the surrounding areas are a little depressed, maybe economically. Right. So it was kind of like, oh, what's going on here? Like, this doesn't seem right. <laughs> or how it's presented it's or something. It's not Vegas of the East. No, it's definitely not. But yeah. they do have some big casinos, or they did. Back then, uh, for see, sure. I also went at night, so it wasn't like we were walking. Like we weren't like on a boardwalk. We literally the just, boardwalk is nice. Like yeah, so I like I, that. I haven't even seen that. We literally just drove to Harris. And my memory is that there was a very old building, like in Boardwalk Empire, that sort of was out on like a um, pier. Yeah, like a very old fashioned building. That's what I want to see. Yeah, they did have that, but it was just kind of like, okay. And they had like some saltwater taffy places. Yeah, I don't know. I may, it maybe it's also going as a kid. I didn't really have control of what I went and saw. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or where I was? Yeah. So maybe it would be different going, although I did go as an adult, I forgot. Because when you live in New York, you can uh, take a bus to Atlantic City and you literally, they give you like a quarter roll on the bus. Like that's part of your package. You oh. pay for the bus ride to Atlantic City. Included in your fare is a is a quarter roll. <laughs> to play the slots. <laughs> to play the slots. I mean, obviously you go over, over that. Uh, yeah, that was like the first night I think I stayed up all night long where I was like, oh, this is how casinos work. <laughs> you have no idea what time it is. <laughs> and then you like walk outside. You're like, oh, it's daylight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why they're awesome. Yeah. So that was like the first time I realized how they kind of work because I had never been to a casino like that before. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah. God, I haven't been inside a casino in like a year and a half. No. Fucking COVID. <laughs> we'll go again. Yeah. Soon. One day. One day. One day. All right. Well, hope you're excited for part two. Got uh, some fun stuff for the mini episode this week. Oh, good. I, I just made that up. But it's, it'll be fun. It'll be... <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I'm doing yet. Now, but... now it will not be fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We will see you on Friday. Bye. Bye.